Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that contemplates issues related to cars and transport. I'm David Brown. And in this program, we have new stories about some new cars, the Mitsubishi FEV, the Kia Sorento and the Hino Hybrid. Our good friend Alan Zervis gives us a rundown on the latest dash cam. We have a series of motoring minutes and we continue our series with motoring journalist and author John Smales on his latest book, Speed Kings, Australia and New Zealand's Quest to Win the Indy 500. This week, Jeff Brabham's unusual style to make sure he takes the first corner flat out at over 400 kilometres an hour. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. And of course, there's always our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. Mitsubishi has updated the plug-in hybrid version of their medium-sized SUV, the Outlander. A traditional hybrid uses an engine and regenerative braking to charge the battery. All you have to do is fill it with fuel at the service station. But the plug-in hybrid lets you charge the battery from an external source. You don't have to do it, but you will not get most of the economy benefits unless you do. A full charge battery means that you can do many local trips just on the quiet, efficient ride of battery power. For longer trips, the engine will charge the battery or, if need be, assist with driving the wheels, so there is no range anxiety. But to benefit, you have to adjust your behaviour to plug it in regularly. The Mitsubishi Outlander is priced from $48,000 to $56,500 plus on-road costs. Kia has launched a new model of its large SUV, the Sorento, that has a more distinctive look inside and out. Initially with a 2.2 litre diesel, but a V6 petrol model is coming soon. The diesel has an 8-speed, wet, dual-clutch transmission. Kias have some great features, but the top-spec Sorento goes even further. On the GT line, if you put the left-hand blinker on, the speedo on the left of the dash changes to a camera view of the left-hand blind spot. And similarly, with the right-hand blinker, the taco on the right changes to a view of the right-hand blind spot. The petrol version will start at nearly $46,000. It's an extra $3,000 for the diesel through the range, leaving the the top-of-the-line diesel at $63,000 plus on roads, which are currently not as dear as many other brands. Hino recently upgraded their 300 series light-duty truck. We drove the one with a gross vehicle mass of just 4.5 tonnes. We tested both the standard diesel and the hybrid model. Hybrid trucks will become an even more important development into the future. The Hino 300 meets the Euro 6 emission levels, which is the best level to date. Hino said that the old model was 21% more fuel efficient than the standard diesel, and the new model with improved systems and a lighter battery should do even better. This class of vehicle has shown great sales growth, coinciding with a move to more online shopping and home delivery. 
The hybrid system operates like a mild hybrid in that it does not travel any distance on battery power alone. Stronger hybrids will further help trucks reduce noise when they start out and accelerate, while reducing engine braking noise as well. For the first time in nearly three years, the monthly sales figures for new cars in Australia are higher than the same month the year before. In November 2020, sales were 12% higher than in November 2019. SUVs and vans and utes continued to lead the way, although growth appeared at the extremities of various categories. In passenger cars, the smallest vehicles, the micros, and the flashiest sports cars were the only categories to grow. With SUVs, the smallest light class and the upper large category showed the dominant growth each over 80%. Small vans grew over 100%, although with utes it was the two-wheel drive rather than the four-wheel drives that showed the most growth. All states except Tasmania increased sales. Private buyers were the big movers, business showed a little growth, but government and rental sales were well down. Hybrid vehicles were the big winners, with sales up 73%. A number of commercial vehicles have now been designed specifically to reduce pollution. Electric garbage trucks are being used in some areas. Now in England, they have developed a vehicle to reduce noise, dust and vibration from roadwork sites to help locals cope. Currently, large excavators are used to remove the waterproof top layer of a road using a steel bucket with teeth but the new deck scraper vehicle uses a blade to shave the membrane off more quietly and without taking out chunks of the road surface. Highways England teamed up with industry leaders to create the machine that was purpose-designed and built to offer a safer, more environmentally sound and efficient process. The membrane has to be removed to undertake concrete repairs, re-waterproofing and resurfacing. The vehicle is the result of an investment by Highways England equivalent to 1.17 million Australian dollars. And that has been the news. You're listening to Overdrive. Audi released an upgraded version of its stunningly beautiful A5 Coupe in August this year, combining the elegance that the A5 Coupe has become renowned for with its new design language. The mild hybrid 45 TFSI Quattro, which we drove, produces 183 kilowatts of power and peak torque of 370 newton metres and can sprint from 0 to 100 in just 5.8 seconds, top speed of 250 kilometres an hour and sips fuel at around 7.1 litres per 100 k's. But the A5 Coupe is more than sporty performance. It's about the entire ambience of the experience. It looks beautiful, it's exceptionally comfortable inside it simply glides along with superb dynamics and exudes elegance. Inside it comes with Audi's latest technology and infotainment connectivity with virtual cockpit, Apple CarPlay, 10.1 inch high resolution MMI haptic touch display, wireless phone charging tray and electric front seats with four-way lumbar support. Priced at just under $80,000 plus the usual costs, it's actually well priced. I'm Rob Fraser. You're listening to Overdrive. I guess all of us have seen some rather poor quality photos of crazy accidents, particularly out of Russia, I seem to remember, but also from other locations recorded on dash cams. 
as the technology progressed, who better to tell us about mechanical devices that can help us in our everyday life than our good friend Alan Zervis. Good day, Alan. David, how are you? Very well. Now, you've been road testing something? I have indeed. The last uh, few years, Navman has been releasing a new range every year, and they often send me a, a couple of uh, units to review. And I think the important thing to keep in mind is that dash cams are used now in uh, something like two-thirds of insurance cases. Oh, really? Something like that. And the, the good thing about it is that you can have a view forward and backward depending on what camera you buy. And, of course, some of the navigation units do this as well, but the one I'm testing this week just is a uh, dash cam unit. Going backwards is very clever too. Uh, I hate when people tailgate me and then drive past and abuse me sort of stuff. I will be able to record all of that now. Not only that, if uh, someone prangs from any direction, whether you're in the car or not, the unit can be set to record that incident because it's got uh, G sensors and so forth. How good a quality are we talking now? Excellent quality. It's full HD in 60 frames per second. And what that means is that you can slow it down if you have a crash or if, you know, someone just crosses the car, uh, crosses the crossing in front of your car or dashes out or a bike wobbles over in front of you. You can press the emergency record button as well and it'll record 10 seconds of video. Uh, and that means that you can have that for your, your, your collection. And I've got such a collection. So when I go to do my video review, I'll put all of those things in it. And it's just like watching it on TV at home. So it can record a lot, but it, the pressing the button just flags it for you. Is that how it works? Exactly. So normally it records in very small parcels, if you like, until it fills up the SD card. It's got a little micro SD card that fits in the top. It fills that card up and then writes over everything. Hmm. So you've got, I don't know, depending on how much time you spend in the car, you know, a couple of days, I guess, perhaps a week worth of video. But anything that records either by the shock sensor or when you press the record button will record an emergency incident. And so it's got a little G-force sensor. That Oh, that's clever. Although... The way perhaps either of us drive might be a way that causes it some angst. <laughs> well, I think you've been in the car with me on the odd occasion where we've been on a particularly nasty road. That one up the back of uh, Picton is, uh, you know, comes to mind. And some of the cars we drive have such firm suspension that it does set off the G sensor. How do you power it? How easy is it to power? So, well, this unit, uh, well, they're all the same in fact, but this unit, the MyView 1100 sensor, XL DC and DC stands by the way for dual camera. There's also a single camera version plugs into your cigarette lighter, but you can have it wired into the car's power system permanently, permanently. Uh, and I would suggest, of course, that when you have the rear camera put in, I haven't tested it in this test. I've just used, uh, I've looked at their film, which uh, shows both cameras at the same quality. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's very difficult to temporarily wire it in. When you say the dual camera, is it one box with a lens out the front and the back, or is it two two separate boxes? Ah, no, two separate. So there's a large box with the uh, picture on it at the front and uh, you know, the forward-facing camera and with all the buttons and so forth. And the recording devices. Yes, yes. So it does all the recording at the front, so you can look back at what you've done for the day, if you like, although I can't think why you'd want to. But... 
You can also have the separate unit mounted on your rear uh, window, so on your hatch or your your uh, rear window, and that faces backwards. So it's just pointing out the back, the same as the front one points out the front. Is it connected by cable or or by Bluetooth? By cable, and so that's why I say in my case, because I test so many things, that it's really difficult going from one car to another to set it up just for a little while. Uh, you need to attach it with proper double-sided tape or it just falls off the window. I've tried. It just doesn't work. Uh, but the cable itself, it uses the cigarette lighter in the front for temporary. So uh, you've seen me with it running across the car and down the side. You just have to be a little bit careful of where you put the cord because of the airbags. What are they worth? 449 for the dual camera version, 299 for the single camera version. But there's a couple of things that I think that makes me prefer a premium quality dash cam, and that is the quality of the lens. So in this case, they're all glass. And in some of the cheaper uh, overseas-made ones, I think we know where I'm talking about, they will be plastic. And can break easily, particularly you who's taking them out of one car one week and putting them in another. It's not just that. It's the fact that the entire unit is better quality. Mm. And in some of the units with sat-nav, it's also got a little flexible camera at the back, so you can point that anywhere you like, even though the unit itself is mounted on a ball joint. And I think finally, you've got a an app, a desktop app that can sort through all your photos and, and it can send things off to insurance companies and so forth. Are you using it in your videos? You can notice the difference in quality? Uh, well, I've got the GoPro set to about the same quality, <laughs> so I've got them set to... HD instead of 4K, uh, and the reason for that is I just don't like big files to handle, and I don't think most people will view it on anything but a mobile, so 4K is wasted. The other important thing, too, is that the Navband has other things built into it. So, for example, it will have the data, and you don't have to, but I, I like to have that. The data displayed on the screen is also recorded, so the position of the car uh, direction of the car and so forth, and also, more importantly for insurance claims, your speed. Some of the cars we drive, we know, will show us what the traffic conditions are, you know, green, amber and red sort of congestion. This will do the same? The navigation models will, but what this one will do, because it doesn't have maps built in, will show you things like speed, so speed zones and so forth. It will also have a lane departure warning which is quite interesting. How the heck does it do that? Well, it's got the forward-facing camera anyway, which is how your car does it, and it simply knows when you've gone over the line. Now, there is a drawback, and that is it's not connected to your car's systems, so it doesn't know you've indicated, so it goes off every single time you cross a lane. Now, at night, you might think, well, you know, it's not going to be much good. It's really going to see what the car's seeing and probably not in good quality, but the two point, sorry, it's not a 2.3, the two thirds of an inch sensor lets in enough light to, like your new uh, iPhones, etc., to make the night quite seeable. So with your car lights, you can see quite a lot of detail, including, and this really surprised me, number plates. And the other good thing is that when you drive from uh, inside a tunnel, to outside a tunnel, it adjusts to the light really quickly instead of being uh, sort of flared for several minutes. 
There are many a story early in the piece where someone has cut a colleague off and abused them and the colleague's merely pointed to the camera and then the person has gone remarkably quiet and driven off. It's funny that, isn't it? And whereas I haven't quite had that happen, but you hear of of, uh, traffic incidents all the time that cause a road rage incident to follow. And I think that if someone saw a dash cam mounted on your windscreen, they're going to think twice because they know that everything they do is recorded. The same as you would do in front of a police car. Well, the same as I'd do in a police car, you might not, you know, because I know you, do. I know you like a drink. <laughs> That's just not true, Alan. It's, it's a little bit of the old Catholicism, really, isn't it? God is watching. That's, well, and that's exactly what it feels like. And I think it probably has made me think more about the way I drive. Things like indicating well and truly in advance. Alan, that's a great review. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. See you next time. And that's Alan Service, who is the founder and writer for gaycarboys.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. Audi refreshed its successful Q7 range in mid-2020 with improved dynamics and advanced infotainment connectivity. In the new model, there are two mild hybrid TDI drivetrains available in three model variations. The 45 TDI Quattro, the 50 TDI Quattro and the 50 TDI Quattro S-Line. The engines are mated to the smooth shifting 8-speed Tiptronic transmission and the legendary Quattro all-wheel drive system. The new Audi Q7 comes with a robust exterior redesign that includes matrix LED headlights, 19-inch alloy wheels, revised front bumper and more styling tweaks. Inside, it retains all the luxury, comfort and practicality that you would expect. It's also a comfortable seven-seater, but like similar vehicles, the rearmost seats are best for occasional use. State-of-the-art technology includes a 12.3-inch virtual cockpit and two separate screens, 10.1-inch haptic touchscreen for infotainment an 8.6-inch screen for vehicle functions. Priced from just under $102,000, the Audi Q7 sits as a segment leader. You're listening to Overdrive. Journalist and author John Smales has just written another book, and this one's called Speed Kings, Australia and New Zealand's Quest to Win the Indy 500, the World's Greatest Motor Race. We had a long interview, which can be found on our website, drivenmedia.com.au, but here's an extract. What sort of power were we talking about? They were allowed up to uh, up to 9.7 litres. So there, there was, in fact, a uh, there, there were rules by which they raced. Mm. So 9.7 litres was the most they were allowed. And they were putting out about 200 horsepower, about 150 kilowatts. So it was a fair amount of horsepower to be having in the day, but it was it was going to the back wheels through all sorts of uh, devices, not the least of which was chain drive back in the day. So there was a lot of power lost before the uh, what what power they had got to the uh, got to the ground. You were saying the first one about seventy miles an hour, one hundred and fifteen kilometres an hour for an average lap. That's not mucking around. At the time, it was by no means mucking around. It was uh, it was pretty good. The first race was one in about six and a half hours. And uh, when you look at the kind of averages that they were doing up around the 80 kilometres an hour on, on track, 80 miles an hour, I'm sorry, on track, that was that was quite exceptional, actually, for its time. And it came down to 
the at its time again the unique layout of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Two very long straights, two quite shorter straights that they call short shoots, and four corners. Now people think it's a big bold circuit. It's really not. The camber is only nine degrees. So in fact it comes down to being not much more of a bowl than many of the more cambered corners on motor racing tracks around the world. And that takes a a degree of bravery, David, Mm. to actually pitch into turn one especially. And these days you're approaching turn one at approaching 400 kilometres an hour and it it presents itself as a 90-degree left-hander to the degree that some of the later drivers say that their brain just simply won't let them keep their foot flat to the floor. And, and David, sorry, Jeffrey Brabham, in fact, told me, because Jeff you know, followed his dad there many years later, Jeffrey told me that his way through was to plant his right foot on top of his left foot to, to keep the left foot flat. Sorry, put the other way around. Yeah. So he actually had to put both, both feet on the accelerator simply to persuade the one that was attached to the metal to stay flat. It went through a time after Rupert and his influence, I think, the Indy, you know, having two world wars and, and a huge depression, while America, perhaps the depression really hit them very hard, but the wars hit them hard, but maybe not as bad as other countries. It was about a 50 period, wasn't there, where international participation wasn't as strong? Yeah, the Americans really, uh, really owned Indianapolis, although it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a misnomer in as much as some 30 Europeans, Europeans and, and Australians, I have to say, have uh, have won the Indianapolis uh, 500. So, but it's still regarded very much as being as American as the uh, as their football Super Bowl, yeah. as their Super Bowl. Yeah, it was very large engine, big brassy sort of approach. Yet one of our own, one of our national treasures, and his mate yeah. added considerable finesse to the design of the cars. Tell us about the Jack and Ron partnership. In 1961, Jack Brabham was invited to race at the Indianapolis 500. He was invited to race by a bloke called Roger Ward, who had just won the Indianapolis 500. And like Jack, he was a speedway driver. And Jack and uh, and Roger got on famously. So Jack took the Cooper Climax, owned by the Cooper family of Great Britain, to Indianapolis. And in that first year, he came ninth. Now, he could have been a podium finisher, except he uh, didn't quite understand, or rather his tyre manufacturer didn't quite understand how the, his tyres should work at Indianapolis. And so they had more tyre changes than they had planned for, which meant that they also got their fuel stops out of sequence. And so Jack salvaged a ninth. But blokes like Roger Ward watched this spindly little Cooper Climax have a run against their big roadsters, their big front-engine, massive cars with huge wheels. The wheels were so big, they towered above the bodywork so much that people say, said you could actually drive them upside down. <laughs> <laughs> but Roger and the others watched Jack, and they thought, you know, that's what's going to win in the future. And within three years, every Indianapolis competitor was running a Jack Brabham-type uh, engine small car, and Jim uh, the world champion, in a small car for the first time in 1965 in in the Lotus. And therefore, you could say that Jack Brabham changed the first Indianapolis. Now, you mentioned Ron Toronac. By 1964, Jack had left Cooper Climax, or Coopers, 
and had started uh, Brabham with Ron Torinac, the great Australian designer who uh, unfortunately died earlier this year, but still mm. a great innings at 95 years of age. And uh, Ron built Jack's cars to go back and contest Indianapolis again. Jack never, never, never really fired at India after that first night, uh, but his cars did. His car was regarded so well that it was copied by an American designer called Braun. And in 1969, a Jack Bratton, Ron Toronek basic design modified by the Americans won Indianapolis in the hands of Mario Andretti. How about that? You have a lovely story about Ron. You met him not long before his passing, but he was even thinking about an engineering solution to a transport problem as well. <laughs> Thank you, David. I, I met Ron at his Budroom Nursing Home, beautiful place, marvel of technology. They really look after the guys there well. But Ron had only just become a, a resident, and part of the arrangement for uh, for becoming a resident was that you had to use a walking frame. Ron surmised that that way they could be blamed if you happened to fall over because at least they'd given you the equipment. The problem was that his walking frame, according to this great Australian motor racing engineer, inherently unstable and inefficient. So at 95 years of age, using the computer-aided design on his computer in his room, he'd set out to redesign the fulcrum by which his walking would better work because they had a, a, a walking area around this large garden at Budrum. And while he was the lap record holder at 95, he figured he could go quicker by, by, by a significant margin. And he was in the process of redesigning his walking frame when unfortunately he fell off the planet. But nonetheless, that was, that was Torinac all over. He was just sensational. Lovely fella. You mentioned Jim Clark. Jim Clark was uh, meticulous in that. Now, there's a lot of people who love the razzmatazz of the Indy 500, but such touch events, they, they need people with a passion to technical detail. Now, one person who watched Indy, learnt a lot from it, then came, went to Australia and won the Touring Car Championship four times, Bathurst four times. He was captivated by the methodical excellence that was needed to win Indy. He worked in the pits on one of Jim Clark's uh, events. Who was it and what was his role? His name is Alan George Moffat. He is four times winner of the Bathurst 1000. He's four times Australian touring car champion and he is our own living legend even though he was born in Canada. In fact he was nationalised here in Australia with his referee being his great friend Peter Brock. So Alan Moffat is very much an Australian. Back then he however was a Canadian and he'd set his mind to going motor racing no matter what. And in Alan's own way, determined way, he reckoned that he had to get alongside Team Lotus, who were running a touring car team in America at the time. And he turned up and offered to work as a gopher, and that's exactly what he did. He was taken on by Team Lotus for no money whatsoever, and he had to find his own way to the events. Uh, but he got to wash the cars and get alongside them. In 1964, they sold him one of their Lotus Cortinas. He brought it back to Australia and ran in the initial Sandown six-hour race and uh, uh, won his class in that car. 
and was going back to America to do some racing over there. There was no suggestion necessarily he was going to stay in Australia. Uh, but uh, he went back to America to see what he, fortune might do for him over there and called in to Indianapolis to again get alongside Team Lotus. And they offered him a job uh, as a gopher again. And he was delighted to take it. In fact, this is one of the great, uh, yeah, one of, one of the great uh, successes of Alan's life. He, he swears by a photograph taken of he and Jim Clark and Colin Chapman after Clark won the race that year. But Alan's job that weekend, that Jim Clark won the Indianapolis 500, was to be the man who held out a long stick carrying a cup of water that he would give to Jim Clark on his two pit stops during the 500-mile race. And that was John Smales relating just one of the great stories from his latest book, Speed Kings, Australia and New Zealand's quest to win the Indy 500, the world's greatest motor race. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to John Smales, Alan Zervis and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>